Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. We're now running our annual Christmas sale in the Logos Online Classroom. You can save 50% off any online course you like when you go to the online classroom and at checkout use coupon code CHRISTMAS2018. That's CHRISTMAS2018. Visit LogosBibleStudy.com, click on Online Classroom, and use the coupon code at checkout to save 50%. Okay, now it's time for the program. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here on Christmas Day with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered, which I've titled, The Quiet Man at the Manger. In late October, my wife Anna and I traveled to Italy to hike the Cinque Terre, five villages perched on the cliffs of the beautiful Italian Riviera in northwestern Italy. The hiking was great, and the views spectacular. At the end of our five days of hiking, we took the train to Florence, my absolute favorite city in Italy, and we spent an entire day in the Uffizi Gallery, exploring the world's greatest collection of Italian Renaissance art. Now, I've been to the Uffizi many times, but on this visit, I especially wanted to spend time with the medieval and early Renaissance art on the second floor. The heartbreakingly beautiful works by Giotto, Simone Martini, Fabriano, Fra Lippo Lippi, Botticelli, and Leonardo da Vinci. Many of those works feature the Annunciation and the Nativity. And of course, Mary and the infant Jesus are prominent in all of those paintings. They are the central figures. In some, Joseph appears, but he seems to be little more than an obligatory figure, along with the shepherds, the magi, the sheep, the goats, and the camels. Of course, Mary and Joseph and Jesus should be central figures. But it got me to thinking about Joseph. Did you know that in all of Scripture, Joseph says not a single word? No, not one. So what do we really know about Joseph? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, we learn that Joseph was descended from Abraham to David through the Davidic line of kings, and right down to the return from Babylonian captivity in 539 BC, led by Zerubbabel. We read in Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, After the Babylonian exile, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud became the father of Elikiah, Elikiah the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok became the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar became the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Matthew goes to great lengths to demonstrate that although Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, he was Jesus' legal father. And hence, Matthew establishes Jesus' legal claim to the throne of King David, 
fulfilling the covenant God had made with David, saying, When your days have been completed, David, and you must join your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will be one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He it is who shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me, and his throne shall be firmly established forever. That's in Second Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. Clearly, this doesn't refer to David's son Solomon. Because when Solomon dies in 930 BC, civil war erupts, and it marks the end of both the kingdom of Israel in 722 BC and the kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. Between Israel and Judah, 39 kings had reigned. But with the death of King Zedekiah in 586, a king never again reigns in Israel, right until this very day. For the past 2,000 years, the church has understood that the future king referred to in the Davidic covenant is not one of the 39 kings. It is Jesus, the son of David. The mid-2nd century AD, Proto-Evangelium of James, tells the story of Anna and Joachim. Anna is old and barren, like Abraham's wife, Sarah, and she longs to have a child. With God's miraculous intervention, Anna conceives and bears a daughter, just as Sarah bore a son, Isaac. Then when Anna's little girl is three years old, as Hannah gave her son Samuel to the high priest at the tabernacle to be raised, so does Anna give Mary to the high priest at the temple in Jerusalem to be raised. For twelve years, Mary lived secluded in the temple in the presence of the Lord, fed by the hand of an angel. When Mary turns twelve, the high priest initiates a search for a proper husband for Mary, calling all the widowers of the land to the temple, where the high priest collects their walking sticks, prays over them, and returns them to their owners. When Joseph received his stick back, a dove miraculously sprouts from the top of it, as Aaron's rod had budded with almond blossoms during the Exodus, a sure sign that Joseph was to be Mary's husband. Joseph objects, however, saying, Oh, come on, I have sons, I'm an old man, she's a young girl, I've become a laughingstock to the people of Israel. But when the high priest threatens Joseph with divine retribution if he refuses Mary, the antique old Joseph gives in and takes Mary as his wife. Well, that's a charming tale, but a very tall tale indeed, full of folklore and legend. And on the whole, well, it's pretty silly. No, I don't think that's what happened, not at all. We then read in Matthew that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. The Greek word is meastuo, and it expresses 
in Greek, the Hebrew word erusin. Erusin is the formal consecration of a young woman to her soon-to-be husband, and it's a binding legal contract, often negotiated by the families of the bride and the groom, sometimes even before the children are born. A betrothal can only be ended through the legal act of divorce. Importantly, the bride and groom don't yet live together after they're betrothed, nor do they physically consummate the marriage. That comes later in a ceremony called the Nishuan, in which the bride is led with dancing, celebration, and much fanfare from her father's house to the house of her husband, where the marriage is consummated and the young man and woman start their life together. So, Joseph and Mary are betrothed, and both are living in Nazareth, a small village of no more than 20 or so extended families, a couple of hundred people at most on a finger ridge overlooking the Jezreel Valley, about 80 miles north of Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown. So we have to ask, what are they doing there? In Matthew chapter 13 at verse 55, we read, Is Jesus not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother's name Mary? The Greek word for Joseph's occupation is tekton, a word traditionally translated as carpenter. But it has a much broader meaning than a person working with wood. It gives us the English words technology and technician. It seems likely that Joseph worked in the building trades, perhaps as a skilled worker in wood, stone, or iron. Now, interestingly, the town of Sephoris lay about three and a half miles north of Nazareth and about three and a half miles southwest of Canaan. In 4 BC, Jewish rebels attacked Sephoris, robbing its treasury. And our historian Josephus reports that the Roman Syrian governor, Varus, then counterattacked the city and burnt it to the ground, killing or selling the Jewish rebels into slavery. Shortly afterward, though, Herod Antipas rebuilt Sephoris as the ornament of the Galilee a center of Jewish Hellenized life, replete with sprawling vineyards that produced and exported really good wine. So perhaps Joseph relocated from Bethlehem to Nazareth because, as a builder, skilled labor was in high demand there and it paid well. Presumably, Mary and her family also lived in the vicinity of Nazareth, because, as a young betrothed girl of maybe 14 or 15 years old, she would have been living with her family when the angel Gabriel appeared to her in the Annunciation story. Now, if that's the case, then when Jesus was growing up, he would have apprenticed to his father Joseph, learning his trade as a tecton, or skilled builder, walking the three and a half miles to Sephoris with his father, lunch buckets in hand to work on the building sites. Lots of workers from Cana would have been there too, 
And of course, Joseph and Jesus would have gotten to know them along with their families. Hence, later on, Mary and Jesus receive an invitation to attend a wedding at Cana. And that's where Jesus performs his first miracle, turning the water into wine. (laughs) Right in the heart of wine country, the Napa Valley of Israel. But back to Joseph. One can imagine that Joseph meets Mary, falls in love with her, and after a suitable courtship, he asks her parents for her hand in marriage. Once agreeing upon the terms of the marriage, Joseph would present a gift, or mohar, the bride price, to Mary's father, who in turn would present it to Mary. In Old Testament times, the father would keep the mohar, as we see in the story of Jacob, Laban, and Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel. But by New Testament times, the mohar belonged to the bride. Her financial insurance policy lest her husband later divorce her or die. Now, everyone in the little town of Nazareth would have been thrilled at the news. And just like at the wedding of Cana, the whole town would have turned out for the Nishuan, the big celebration of leading the bride to her husband's home, complete with several days of feasting, dancing, and a whole lot of wine. But then... The angel Gabriel arrived, and that changed everything. Now, we explored Mary's response in the four-part podcast series I did recently on Mary. But what about Joseph? After the Annunciation and Mary's yes to God, she'd have to tell Joseph. And how would Joseph react? We're told in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, that Mary, having been found with child, and Joseph being a righteous man and unwilling to expose Mary to shame, had in mind to divorce her quietly. That is, to break the Jerusalem agreement that he had made with her family. The alternative, under Mosaic law, was far too horrible to consider. We read in Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24, If there is a young woman, a virgin who is betrothed, and that would be Mary, and a man comes upon her in the city and lies with her, you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and there stone them to death. But Joseph loved Mary. And how could he divorce her quietly in the little village of Nazareth? Hey, the wedding invitations had already gone out. The date was set. And the whole little town looked forward to the big celebration. Now, anyone who's grown up in a small town knows that there are no secrets. Everybody would know. And indeed, over 30 years later, When Jesus locks horns with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they insult him in John chapter 8, verse 41, by saying, We of fornication have not been born. The Greek word 
is porneia. And we get the English word pornography from it. Rumors about Jesus' background dogged both him and Mary for the rest of their lives. So, Joseph decides to go through with the divorce. But what about Mary? Clearly, she couldn't stay in Nazareth. With divorce proceedings and everyone knowing the reason behind them, the shame would be too great. So Mary leaves, an unmarried, pregnant teenager. But where can she go? Mary's relative, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, being part of God's plan, are the only two people in the entire world who could understand. So, that's where Mary goes, to Elizabeth's home in En Karem, a village about five miles from Jerusalem and a 90-mile walk from Nazareth. Now, Luke implies that she walked it alone. And I can tell you, it was no walk in the park. Mary walks through the hill country, the mountains of Judea. She's left her home. She's been rejected by Joseph. She's newly pregnant. So think of morning sickness. It was not a pleasant journey. And what of Joseph? Mary stays with Elizabeth for about three months until the birth of Elizabeth's son, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. For those three months, Joseph must have vacillated among anger, shame, despair. He must have wept countless tears. He was heartbroken. And then one night, the angel Gabriel appears to Joseph in a dream, and he explains everything. Waking up with a start, Joseph must have said, Oh my God, what have I done? I don't even know where Mary went. And then there's a knock on the door, and there's Mary with a little blue suitcase in her hand. Now, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall in that scene? Joseph takes Mary as his wife, and several months flash by. What did they talk about? What did the people of Nazareth talk about? Later, in Jesus' public ministry, he returns to Nazareth, where he reads from Isaiah 61 at the local synagogue's Shabbat service and he preaches the sermon or the homily. He's not well received. The people of Nazareth insult him, and they want to throw him off a cliff. But that's later on. Now, with Mary as his wife, Joseph receives word that Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, had issued a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, that's not unusual. All centralized governments use a census to determine population size and demographics, to establish tax policies, and government planning for services and infrastructure. In the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel 
takes a sentence of the people returning with him from Babylon to Jerusalem. The head count by tribe, clan, and family is 42,360 men, plus 7,337 male and female servants, 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Well, that's a pretty detailed census. In America, we take a census every 10 years. In the census decreed by Augustus, people had to register in their traditional hometown. Much as when we vote today, we have to vote in our own precinct. If I'm teaching classes up in Los Angeles or Orange County on Election Day, I can't vote in Los Angeles or Orange County. I have to return home to San Diego or use a mail-in absentee ballot. In the same way, Joseph and Mary, as a household, have to return to Bethlehem to register for the census. Unfortunately, Mary is nine months pregnant. Joseph doesn't want to leave her behind in Nazareth with the baby coming, so she travels with him. And I have to say it here. Mary didn't ride on a donkey. She walked. I've hiked with donkeys as pack animals. And I have to tell you, donkeys are slow. They set their own pace, and when a donkey's had enough, it simply stops. And you can't get it started again until it's darn good and ready to go. Being stubborn as a donkey is a pretty accurate description. And even if Mary did ride a donkey, it would be like riding a motorcycle with knobby tires down the freeway. Why, she would have given birth five miles outside of Nazareth. Mary could have ridden on a cart, pulled by a donkey, I suppose. But the simplest solution is probably best. Mary and Joseph walked. Bethlehem is 70 miles from Nazareth as the crow flies. The shortest route is through the hill country, through Samaria, and that's the way Mary journeyed to En Karem to visit Elizabeth. But given the antipathy between Jews and Samaritans, when larger groups of Jews traveled, they would have taken the longer pilgrim route, crossing the Jezreel Valley east to the Jordan River, fording the river at Beit Shan, traveling south to Jericho, fording back across the Jordan River, and taking the 17.3-mile Roman-built road up from Jericho to Jerusalem, climbing from 900 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above, an elevation gain of nearly 3,500 feet. It's nearly a 100-mile journey on foot, and at 20 miles a day, it would have taken upwards of a week to reach Bethlehem. And again, we have to wonder about the conversation on the road between Joseph and Mary. Clearly, Joseph would have been, would have been concerned about Mary's very pregnant condition, and I'm sure he would have done everything possible to make Mary's journey comfortable, to reassure her, and to encourage her. Once they arrive in Bethlehem, because of the census, there's nowhere for them to stay. 
All the hotels, if you will, are full. Now, travelers would have stayed in something similar to a caravan sarai, an enclosed courtyard that could accommodate 50 or so people, provide food and shelter for the animals, dinner and breakfast for the travelers, and any special requests the travelers may have had. And Joseph had a very special and rather urgent request. Mary was about to give birth. The innkeeper, I think, was very compassionate, providing Joseph and Mary with privacy away from the other travelers, perhaps in his barn or a cavern out in back where his own animals were stabled. And that's where Jesus is born. In a quiet space, warmed by the breath of cattle, sheep, and goats, and placed in a manger, a feeding trough, layered with hay. I suspect the innkeeper's wife served as Mary's midwife, and perhaps some of the other women travelers as well. Now, we're not told what Joseph did. Traditionally, men were not present during the birth of a child. That was women's work, and Joseph would have been sent inside with the other men. And I wonder what the men talked about as they waited. But once Joseph heard the baby's cry, one of the women would have brought him to Mary's side as she held the infant Jesus. Joseph looked into Mary's eyes, and tears filled his eyes. Mary said, Would you like to hold him? And Joseph did. Looking down into that little face, Joseph's heart melted. And what did he feel?
Angel said, 